Actions, Responses to Trafficking, the podcast that shines a spotlight on new and established trafficking responses in the UK and beyond. Hi, and welcome back to Actions, the Responses to Trafficking podcast. I'm Catherine Baldacchino, and this is a podcast where I speak to people who are working in different ways to respond to trafficking in order to help share their work with other people who are also working in the field. Today's discussion is with Olivia Nightingale from Hope for Justice. Olivia has been working as an independent modern slavery advocate and has been working to develop the model more widely. She offers loads of insight to what the model looks like and the key learning the advocates are making. We spoke in October 2020. So as always, thanks for downloading this episode and get in touch with any feedback or further questions via at Actions Podcast on Twitter. So today I'm speaking with Olivia Nightingale, who is an independent modern slavery advocate at Hope for Justice and also the focal point looking at the development of the IMSA model and its wider rollout. Hello, Olivia. Thanks for making the time for this discussion today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to to talk to you. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I'm really looking forward to talking about the IMSA model and this this new um, this program that you're working on. And we will definitely be discussing the uh, IMSA, the advocates in just a moment. So aside from your role, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? A little bit about myself. The golden question where everyone freezes and says, what's interesting about me? Um, I, in terms of kind of how I, I guess, how I came to Hope for Justice, Um, I have a legal background, so I studied law at the University of Nottingham, sadly before the Rights Lab existed, otherwise I probably would have made every excuse to be involved with them and be um, supporting the work they're doing. But I, um, following sort of graduating, I was kind of looking into whether I wanted to explore a career in law as a barrister or solicitor, I still wasn't sure if uh, out of those two kind of professions, and therefore took up kind of various different sort of legal opportunities and, and trying to gain experience that kind of range from some work with sort of citizen advice and paralegal work. Um, I was a research assistant for a while with um, the University of Nottingham in international human rights law, which again, I really, really loved. But as kind of I did more of this experience and was thinking more about what I wanted to get into, I was very aware that I really enjoyed working with people very holistically and seeing various different areas of their world work together to help you know achieve outcomes and while I'm very passionate about the law and I'm sure that will shine through today I um also kind of didn't want to personally go straight into a role where I was looking really specifically at one area like immigration or social welfare or um kind of public law and not then have the ability to work with um clients and and now survivors in more of a kind of holistic capacity so that's when I first actually came in to contact with the issue, I guess, of human trafficking, volunteering for a charity, working with sex workers and had training actually from Hope for Justice about sort of spotting the signs. Um, and I then came across um, a legal internship that Hope for Justice were running at the time and applied to that. And then that was in 2017. So I've now been with Hope for Justice for three years and transitioned from a legal intern into my role as an independent modern slavery advocate and IMSA, which will go on to um, after. So that's kind of a bit about my um, kind of how I came to my role. Um, outside of work, I love being outside, lover of nature, care a lot about the environment. Um, we, my husband and I have an allotment where we grow a lot of weeds. 
and the occasional vegetable. <laughs> um, we're not, yeah, not currently um, doing so well, but we have, we've had, we've had produce. It's, it's fun. So yeah, I just, I love being outside. I love being connected with nature. Um, definitely kind of how I unwind. Um, and yeah, I don't know if there's any much more to say. Well, there probably is, but not for this introduction. <laughs> That is brilliant and great to know about the allotment as well. Yeah. So um, if what anyone's any in need of veggies. About, yeah. <laughs> Come to me, no problem. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I do enjoy it. <laughs> That's great. And um, about your role and about working for Hope for Justice, what is it that motivates you about the field and about your job in particular? Oh, good question. Um, I am definitely very motivated by seeing survivors empowered to make their own decisions. And I think that's kind of what really drew me to Hope for Justice and in particular their advocacy team was I saw a team that facilitated kind of that empowerment and that um, ability to make informed choices that survivors have when certain barriers are dealt with, worked on, overcome. Um, and that really motivates me, like working kind of working with my clients are some of the most inspiring people I know and their kind of ability to put up with a lot of challenges not only obviously in their history but then also sort of went after they've sort of left exploitation it's really inspiring to see kind of their resilience and to have a small part to play in working alongside them is is such a privilege that's probably my main driver <laughs> fantastic yeah definitely a reason to to come into work every day absolutely um, and with regards to hope for justice how would you describe or introduce hope for justice to people who are completely new to the organization Yes. Um, so Hope for Justice is an international um, anti-slavery um, organisation. We have a vision to live in a world free from slavery. We currently work in over like 30 locations, I believe, across kind of five continents. Um, and we kind of we approach, I guess, the issues of modern slavery and human trafficking very differently in, in the context with which we're working. Um, so our programmes, I guess, in, in other countries will look quite different to our programmes in the UK. But in the UK, um, we kind of have four key strands to our programming, which is training. So we look at identifying, um, well, training people to identify the sort of signs and indicators of, of human trafficking that I sort of attended, you know, way back when, um, when I was working with kind of sex workers. And um, we have, and they also do some training on kind of first, how to be a first responder and their duties and and doing that well. Um, we have hubs that look at identifying potential victims, making sure they make um, informed choices about whether they do or don't want to enter the NRM, that they're kind of safeguarded in the meantime. Um, and we have an advocacy team, which is the, the independent modern slavery advocates and our IMS model, which we'll obviously go on to. And all of those kind of three strands, we then feed into our like reform agenda. Um, so we look at kind of taking that frontline experience to um, kind of the you know, to the home office, to the sector to say, these are the things that we would we would like to see change. These are the challenges we're facing. These are the opportunities we see for um, for improvement and actually see sort of legislative and policy changes that then have a wider impact on, on survivors beyond those that we um, sort of more particularly work with. Um, and Hope for Justice actually also has a kind of a business arm called Slavery Alliance that works with um, businesses to um, identify and like, you know, ultimately to prevent, you know, monosavory and human trafficking in their supply chains. And it actually operates as a social enterprise. So all the profits then come back into the program um, of Hope for Justice. So when businesses are kind of involved in that, they not only get the sort of support looking at their supply chains, but also the 
you know the 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 money that comes through from that supports our program so it's really kind of a great initiative but yeah that's kind of us kind of globally and mainly in the UK excellent and it's really interesting that you've got also the international side of your work too so I presume that's a really unique opportunity to inform practice across uh, borders as well and so international work probably informs your UK practice and vice versa absolutely and I think we find that a lot more than others actually often imagine I think we sometimes can have quite quite a kind of um, a view that often things that we learn in the UK or in the US for example we must kind of take to other countries and we found like so often it's the opposite that's true that some of the learnings that we have from um, kind of our, our work in Ethiopia in Cambodia in in Uganda have really like informed and enriched the kind of practice um, kind of here in here in the UK and in Norway and the US and in other countries where we're um, where we operate very different programs but a lot of the um, so kind of in some of our um, countries like Ethiopia and Cambodia and Uganda we work with children whereas in the UK um, we we work with with adults so there are there are some kind of key differences but actually there is so much crossover and learning um, as you say kind of going back and forth between those different countries and it really does enrich our kind of yeah I guess our programs and our our expertise. And where in the UK are you based? Where do you work from? And what coverage do you have of the UK? Yeah, it's a good question. So our head office is Manchester. So we're one of the uh, um, sort of northern charities, I guess. Um, and but we do kind of operate more um, kind of around the around the UK. Um, and that's kind of true for all of our programmes in the UK. But I think for for advocacy in particular, while our head office is in Manchester and our independent advocates work out of our Manchester office or out of our homes as we now are in this strange time um we do work with clients um kind of largely in the midlands and the north um large and that's you know if we did have a client that was in london we often feel that to try and find support in london is tends to be better because there's london is a whole kind of world of its own in terms of some of the advocacy required to to um obtain um yeah get 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 good results for clients um so yeah predominantly in the kind of midlands and the and north of england is where we operate our kind of advocacy team so we do work remotely obviously meeting with clients when we can um and um but but yeah can kind of follow clients where they go as well which i know we might come to when we talk about our model but it is there's definitely a a benefit in that but if our client suddenly has to uproot and move for any reason if they're dispersed if they're if they move to a different safe house, we're able to still maintain that kind of continuity of um, kind of relationship and support. So that's a real advantage as well of being, you know, mm-hmm. working with clients around the around the country. Yeah, for sure. And just to help people place the organisation in relation to the rest of the sector. Yeah. Um, so Hope for Justice isn't a victim care contract provider, yes. is not part of the NRM and is not a first responder. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we um, sit outside of government provision across all our um, programmes and that has kind of benefits for us, particularly in the um, role of independent non-savory advocates, quite important for the independence piece. And it also gives us quite a unique position with which to kind of support the sector and support what's happening within the sector objectively and, um, you know, using the voices of our um, clients and what survivors are saying about the the support to kind of really help to enhance and improve, um, you know, operations of support and and the support provided by the VCC and other government provisions so we're kind of we I guess it is a privilege um to to be in that position to be able to do that Mm. 
Yeah. So this seems like the right time to start talking more about the independent modern slavery advocates and that yes. role specifically in relation to the sector and how that yeah. uh, interacts. So uh, can you summarize what an IMSA is? Yes, an IMSA is um, essentially a single point of contact and trust for a um, survivor of trafficking in the UK, um, adult survivors of trafficking in the UK who um, are find themselves navigating very kind of complex systems of support, facing multiple barriers to accessing that support for various different reasons. And um, a kind of the job and the role of an IMSA is to have a kind of in-depth and holistic knowledge of those areas of support in order to kind of advocate for you know, these barriers to be overcome and for clients to be able to achieve the outcomes that they, you know, want and achieve their kind of goals without the, you know, these barriers that are so often very unnecessary kind of getting in, getting in the way. So um, we kind of traditionally have a either a legal or a social work background. And um, yeah, in the kind of development of the model, we actually merged two teams. We had a separate kind of legal caseworker role and a survivor support caseworker role. And we actually, from feedback for clients saying, actually, I just want one person that understands both mm. things. Um, we um, actually merged those two teams and kind of created the, the role of the independent mom savory advocate. But um, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> um, but obviously, there's kind of a lot of facets to it. But we yeah, as, as, as we've kind of touched on, we sit outside of government provision and we work in, in accordance with the advocacy charter um, and the survivor care standards, as well as kind of trauma informed approaches. And, and, and those things are very important to us. So um, I kind of create the foundation of what what an IMSA is. And so are all your IMSAs legally trained as well as sort of support caseworker trained as well? Or, or are there different individuals in different roles yes so we so so when we had the kind of split legal caseworkers would have a legal background and survivor support um caseworkers tended to have a social work background and now we've merged those two so for an IMSA we would kind of say we'd ideally like people with either a legal or a social work background or kind of equivalent experience in those areas and then um depending on the individual themselves the kind of I guess the training obviously the training is consistent across all IMSAs but the training will bring those with a social work experience up to the level required for the legal advocacy and those with the legal experience up to the knowledge you know required for um you know the soft skills reflective practice working with clients in a you know trauma-informed way things that are more traditionally Mm -hmm. kind of social work focused so we kind of desire to bring those two together really in the role of, of an IMSA but the team definitely internally supports one another with that and we we each have kind of individual specialisms that we will draw on for our casework and, and support one another in, in that. And how long has the role been how, how long have you been working on this role and, and how long has um, INS existed within Hope for Justice? Yeah so um, it was back in I think we created the role of IMSA around sort of 2016 early to 2017 and our now um, director of legal policy Philippa Roberts she wrote a um, briefing paper on the role of an independent non-slavery advocate she shared that with the sector at the time it's still available so if people are interested in seeing that they can um, be happy to share that and that really kind of explored looking at the um, roles of independent domestic violence advocates um, independent sexual violence advocates learning from those models saying how you know, recognizing there is a need for um, that kind of role in our in our sector, perhaps even 
I'd say even more so with some of the clients that we're working with, with the complexities around immigration are present um, and the kind of the extra support available to survivors of, of human trafficking adds another kind of layer of complexities and places where people can fall through gaps. So I think there was definitely an you know, identification that it was independent advocacy that was needed. So the IMSA role was kind of created in more formally, I guess, in 2017. And we've been um, ever since then kind of just really putting the model into practice, I guess, and refining it and developing it as we go and, and taking our learnings um, from feedback from survivors, from things we found do and don't work in order to kind of get to the point where we're now, as you kind of mentioned in the introduction, looking at the kind of development of the model. How do we take it beyond, you know, the team of sort of eight IMSAs that we have um, in our in our Manchester office and see kind of more survivors able to access, a, you know, independent advocacy of this kind of kind. And who is eligible for support? So how can people become eligible and be part of this program? Um, so we open, we sort of operate a very open referral criteria, which I think is quite important for independent advocacy. Um, so it's not dependent on having recourse to public funds. I mean, one of the main things we do is support clients to, to um, ensure they get the right advice to, to ensure they have that, that recourse. Um, it's kind of not not tied to any kind of NRM status. So we will work with um, kind of clients wherever they are, if, they, if, it, if independent advocacy is something they, they want and, and need. Um, in terms of accessing that support more historically, our clients were predominantly those that our hubs had identified. And we were kind of felt, um, you know, we did really feel this commitment of we've, we've identified the, these, um, these potential victims. They've gone kind of often gone into the NRM and then they are, they were often finding themselves in quite difficult situations and, and sometimes ending up kind of destitute and homeless. And we recognize the need for a longer term advocacy and support. So we really wanted to support, you know, we, a lot of our referrals came kind of internally from, from our, from our hubs. Mm. more recently we've kind of have opened up to more external referrals and now we we've actually more even more recently sort of developed to because we are only a team of of eight IMSAs and there's only so many full cases I guess we can we can run we've created two complementary strands to our IMSA model which are advice and intervention only so we really do welcome advice from the sector I think um you know hopefully quite a few are aware of that and I can share the details of how how people can access that support um, and that's for survivors and for those in you know professionals in the sector um, and we will also kind of offer a kind of an intervention only service where um and this is usually kind of where a client has, you know, appropriate support and um, quite, you know, like coherent support in place, but there is the need for the expertise of the advocacy team in one really specific area. So we've sometimes, um, you know, right. written grounds for a mandatory reconsideration of a welfare, welfare benefit decision or um we've done sort of pre-nrm advocacy and ensured that um a, a potential victim can access the appropriate support of the vcc so there are various different ways in which that would mm-hmm. um support a client in a very specific area but actually full advocacy isn't needed or not wanted in in, in the case so um that's really enabled us to support more survivors and also really support the sector and kind of share some of the expertise and, and knowledge that we've kind of gained over over the years so we really do yeah welcome people using that and then if um i guess that's kind of how then referrals can can be made if when th- that advice is given if we recognize this is definitely a case that would warrant you know a, a full kind of advocacy 
sort of package of, of support and the, the the client wants that support then we will if capacity allows then then take it on as a full case excellent it's really great to know actually that the sector can also tap into your expertise too through the advice line through the Absolutely. intervention yeah. only program which means that you're supporting survivors but also supporting others who are supporting survivors Absolutely. with their knowledge and capacity building as well or yes. checking certain things with you yes and actually the more um people are using that kind of advice um service the the, the better it becomes because the more you hear of other things available those that are calling you say that we have this available and like great and then that that helps the next kind of caller so I think it is um yeah. yeah definitely we want it to be a resource for the sector as well as for um survivors kind of with complex cases that you know don't really know where where to go yeah um something else I've heard you mention before is that the support is available for as long as people need it so there's no yes. kind of you know time frame and you're really with people on the journey to their own kind of place of, of recovery or, or well-being um from your experience what stage do you find is the most ideal time to have an IMSA get involved um because you've really you know um, clearly highlighted the complexity of people's situations mm. and the amount of different organizations that somehow suddenly get involved in somebody's situation and how confusing that can be. Um, is there a particular kind of golden moment or, or a really you know, perfect opportunity where IMSA could best be deployed for, for an individual? That is a really, really interesting question. I guess from, from experience and from our caseload, I would say that the earlier the, the better. Um, and I would say that because so much of our advocacy work is to um, kind of, I guess, prevent homelessness, ensure that people have their rights and entitlements. And if you get to a certain point where those have already been, you know, human rights have already been breached, someone has already spent time on the streets, that's kind of... Um, it, it's not necessarily like harder it's just that that survivor has been through that situation now of having experienced yeah. destitution and homelessness after having been identified so I think in that sense the earlier the better but that means that there's kind of a, a bit of like a I don't know like lulls I guess in the in the period of, of of intense support so I say if we initially kind of got involved when someone was sort of first identified um and they were looking at whether they wanted to go into the NRM and we gave pre-NRM advocacy so they really wanted to access the support of the VCC um but for some reason we're, we're having some challenges there we would support them into that and then if they were living in a safe house it might be that we we kind of are less involved we work in partnership with the um support worker in the safe house to see what what sort of what support needs are likely to be to go beyond their time in the safe house, things like immigration, compensation, cooperation with the police. And we will kind of, I guess, take more of the lead on those things. And the, the support worker takes more of the lead on the other things so that when then that client transitions out of the NRM, we already have the established relationship with the client. We've worked well with the, you know, support worker or outreach worker in the NRM to ensure that that's a smooth transition and we're not picking it up later at a point when mm. sort of, I guess, crisis yeah. has happened. So in that sense, um, the mm. earlier, the better. But there are definitely times when more intense advocacy is required. And I would say that that is at key transition phases. So, you know, when they're identified, when they're they're exploring their future options, when they're exited out of the NRM, you know, when they've just had um, a significant decision on, um, I don't know, either mm. their kind of CG or an overturning of a decision or they're about to engage with the criminal justice system. There are, there are key points where maybe the advocacy intensifies and there are times where it kind of is yep. is is more light touch but the commitment to working with survivors long term is a real privilege and one that I don't think we take lightly I think we we, we are so grateful 
And I'm very grateful to Hope for Justice for allowing us to work with people longer term. Um, and we are very kind of, we take very like seriously the imp importance of in like the independence of a survivor. So I guess yeah. what I'm saying is we don't want, we, we definitely don't want to encourage like dependence on the IMSA. Um, but the whole role of an IMSA is to ensure that a survivor is making informed choices. And actually the, the, the time that we're involved is usually because of the extensive time that certain processes take, like the criminal justice process, like civil compensation processes can take years. Um, so ensuring that, that the kind of client has that support and can tap into their kind of IMSA and that, that expertise throughout those processes, we've seen just, you know, has, you know, had a had yeah had a huge impact on survivors and that's what they've kind of fed back to us so it is something that we do see as quite important and that's definitely coming through in in the case studies and in all the reports about um <clears throat> excuse me the success of the IMSA model so far mm. um you've touched on some interesting points there about um engagement with the criminal justice yes. system um and informed consent and really enabling people to make their own choices yes I'm really keen to hear from you because I think your expertise on this would be really insightful in the practical application of how you strike the balance between your independence and your principle of really fully informed consent uh, and enabling people to make their own choices, but balancing that against kind of a deliverable about wanting possibly to see more people engage with mm, criminal mm -hmm. justice and prosecution. And I know it's one of the outcomes that you measure that actually mm. people are more engaged with criminal justice because of IMSAs. Mm -hmm, How mm -hmm. do you strike the balance between really trying to have people make their own choices, but equally wanting people to engage with criminal mm. justice? That is a very good question. And I think my response to it would be that by solely focusing on the first the latter happens. Um, and I think that's what we've kind of experienced is that actually when survivor care is a priority, when survivors are given um, informed choices, when they're not destitute and homeless, when they have kind of stable housing, they have um, sort of stable income, they, they themselves then come to a point where they are ready to engage with the criminal justice system. Now, it's very important to say there will be some survivors that never will. And we respect that. And we would never put pressure on survivors to um, engage with the police. But I think what we what we found by it's almost like the engagement with the police was more an outcome of the advocacy that we then identified and said, hey, this is something that this you know, this role helps towards rather than us saying, oh, we want to do this. So does this work for it? It was kind of like chicken before the egg. It was, um, oh no, yeah. cart before the horse, chicken before the egg. That was not the right analogy. You know what I mean? Um, cart before the horse, if you, um, <laughs> they if you actually apply. the horse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, maybe they do. Um, but yeah, if, we, if you really prioritize and ensuring that survivors are empowered to make their own choices and they are supported to access basic human rights, um, their kind of ability to engage in those systems just it is suddenly opened up and we have found kind of from experience that so many clients that were terrified of engaging with the police initially did open up to the idea and actually came to us saying I would like to report to the police and that was because they were in you know their mental health was much more stable or they um they weren't terrified of being deported you know all these there are so many barriers initially when someone is first identified to cooperating with the police and I think we also really um, pride ourselves on working well with the police to kind of enhance that engagement because I think there's a lot of yeah. misconceptions amongst the sort of survivor communities of engagement with the police. 
a lot that have come from very true and real experiences. And I know there's a lot of learning and, um, you know, but, but there's much more kind of good practice out there. I think a lot more police, you know, forces are, are now much more keenly aware of the issues of monosavory and human trafficking, how to spot it. But when a client has had an experience of, you know, police coming in and arresting them rather than identifying them, they're, and, you know, very naturally going to be closed off to that. But I think as you really prioritise ensuring that someone has their... Um, yeah, their, their basic needs and also is listened to and empowered, their decision to engage with the criminal justice system becomes their own decision and often often does lead to them wanting to, to do that is what I guess what we've found. Mm, great. So it's really about not necessarily going in and focusing on it, but actually by channeling all attention and energy on proper survivor support, one of the outcomes turns out to be that people are more cooperative exactly that yeah Yeah. and of course there's there's work that goes into you know encouraging and enhancing that relationship demystifying some of what it looks like to engage with the criminal justice system we support people as witnesses in trials um 100 of the clients that have that we've worked with that have been called as as witnesses have been able to attend trial so again when they are then actively engaging with the criminal justice system you know, the role of an IMSA and independent advocacy actually then helps them to continue that uh, kind of engagement. Um, so it kind of, it is kind of both sides. But yes, as you, as you say, if you focus on the one, the, the other is kind of a natural byproduct often. So mm, that's really good to know. Really, really interesting learning. Um, and in terms of the work of the IMSAs and the things that they're engaging with mm. and the types of issues they're seeing, what are some of the key issues or challenges that they're uh, asked to deal with or they need to deal with as part of their support to survivors? Yeah, um, there are many challenges and, 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 and issues, I guess, that, that clients face. And I think that we only exist because there are challenges and, and issues in that sense. Independent advocacy is there to help over, overcome those. I think if I had to try and think of the, the key ones, I'd probably I'd probably lump them under kind of headings in the sense that some of the challenges or some of the key challenges faced are as a result of a lack of support on one side or failures or fractures in those support systems mm. or um, kind of falling through the gap of those systems. So it's kind of either there are there is there is kind of a, a lack. So I guess an example of that is where we have clients who have relatively complex needs. Perhaps they've been evicted from a safe house for antisocial behavior linked to um, substance misuse and mental health. Um, the lack of dual diagnosis teams across all the country that work with people with both mental health and alcohol um, substance uses cause cause an issue for those clients to, to, to really to move on and to address um, those kind of those two challenges. Um, and also the lack of kind of specialist support and appropriate accommodation for some of these clients. For example, single unit accommodation mm. within the NRM is something that we commonly kind of advocate for and we 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 sort of raise to the home office saying that some clients will not be able to recover in a shared house like that is you know we just we have time and time again seen clients that have been evicted because of behavior often rightfully so you know the 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 reasons for eviction are legitimate you have to safeguard other survivors in in the safe house but then when that client when we've advocated for that client to to secure single you know single unit accommodation their own space they've linked them in with a dual diagnosis team for example suddenly their behavior changes that you know they're able to engage with the services mm-hmm. and we've seen you know quite quite significant transformations in those cases so I think there is some sense in which that the, the lack of um I guess the lack in every area of some of those services is presents a real challenge mm-hmm. 
Um, but then where the systems do exist, they're often providing amazing support to to survivors. And we couldn't do our job without those systems existing. You know, we need, um, you know, like local authority to provide housing. We need DWP to provide benefits. We, you know, we need the NRM to provide specialist support and safe housing and outreach work. Um, but I guess where some of the challenges lie there is where those systems don't work in the way that we should. I mean, just just the other week we've had, I mean, we're involved, um, got became involved in a um, with a couple um, and we're working with them in an advocacy capacity and our our IMSA um, recognized that there was a challenge that, that the clients were in, entitled to employment and support allowance um, and that they had been entitled for the last three years so alongside advocacy it went to the um, kind of front loading the advocacy doing mandatory reconsiderations getting it to appeal stage working alongside the air center we got that decision overturned and a twenty four thousand pound back pay for the the money that was owed to them so i think wow. it's some of our challenges is that, that yeah that the the kind of support that should be available to clients is so hard to access and I mean, if you take kind of compensation, for example, it's an ECAT right for clients and um, for, for survivors to access compensation. One of the ways they can access it is through the CICA scheme, um, Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority scheme. Um, however, when you apply as a um, victim of trafficking, you're often told, oh, it's not actually a crime of violence, so you, you can't have compensation or, oh, you didn't cooperate with the police, you know, even though. The, you know, your trafficker told you that they kill your family if you cooperated with the police. Oh, you can't, you can't have compensation or, um, oh, you have previous criminal convictions. I oh, know you also can't have compensation. So there are, there are multiple challenges in each individual area. And of course, those advocacy is kind of committed to the amount of times I've had to have conversations with clients and tell them, yeah, your, your application has been refused on the fact that you didn't, they, they don't believe you suffered a crime of violence like that is a horrible conversation to have and I've had clients shouting yeah. I'm like I'd be shouting if I was you know hearing hearing that news I completely completely agree with you but we're kind of committed to making the application knowing it will get refused to then um, sort of refer it to a solicitor that's looking at kind of changing you know and trying to bring challenges to the whole system so that it's changed mm. for for all survivors so I think that's kind of the second umbrella I guess where systems aren't necessarily working or allowing clients to access the support that they deserve or even that presenting someone as homeless can can require kind of extensive advocacy just to get someone a house I mean we're talking about a very basic human right to have shelter Mm. and to have housing um and you know status I mean if we just if we sort of I don't know gave survivors the dignity of stable status and stable housing what what that would do to open up opportunities for them is is you know kind of painful to think of because it's just such simple things that are so difficult for for clients to access in our in our systems in our context so I think that would be how I would describe a lot of the challenges are like it is simple things like housing like income you know like compensation for what they've been through but there are so many barriers that they face in each of those areas that that um makes that all the more challenging and then I think the last thing I said was where yeah falling through the gaps of systems I know I mentioned that when I sort of said about mental health and um, you know alcohol support that's another way in which people will fall through the through the gaps but we see too often um, survivors falling through the gaps of systems such as the asylum system local authority the NRM where all systems say I don't actually have a duty because this other system has a duty and then that system says we don't have the duty because the other person has the duty and I think it's it's really challenging I think we will continue to advocate and especially in our reform agenda for clarity to be given to where responsibility lies so you know one of those key example of that is pre-NRM who who 
who has the duty to provide kind of accommodation and support and safeguarding to a potential victim in that space it's still unknown yeah. and, it, and it means we're leaving people in very vulnerable situations where they're falling between the gaps of these services unable to access the service they want because they're being told they have access to another service that's also told them that they can't access that service so um I mm. think kind of advocacy t- tries to obviously bring about individual results and outcomes for those individual cases but also takes this learning saying where is the like the lack you know what what is needed in terms of systems where are systems failing and also where are people falling through the gaps and let's try and use this knowledge and expertise to make those kind of uh, changes um at a kind of policy level which i know there's amazing work in the policy field campaigning Mm. for all these you know all these same things but um yeah i say they were our kind of three key challenges that, that we face excellent really really clear and i always I'm really hesitant about asking that question because especially for people like yourself that work so intensively in the sector because actually there are a lot of shortcomings and there are a lot of things that obviously still require us to continue working in this way. Um, So as a way of a bit of a flip side to that because your IMSAs are so involved and are seeing so much practice across the sector and engaged with so many different organisations and really that sort of common thread for people. Um, Are there any good practices that you're starting to see that you definitely want to be promoting or encouraging other people to start thinking about oh gosh absolutely and that's such an important follow-up question because I think we can sometimes all get you know all of those that work in this sector can become very bogged down with some of the challenges that we face because we are facing it every day and so we you know we see survivors having to battle these um battle with these things but um there absolutely are some fantastic you know examples of good practice um Several, I guess, that I would highlight. I'm, you know, hugely have welcomed some of the initiatives coming into the pre-NRM space. You know, I was mentioning how often sort of people are left in this limbo. It's not really sure um, kind of who has a duty to provide that accommodation. And obviously accommodation is so necessary, you know, even to have a stable setting with which someone can make informed decisions about the NRM. So, you know, like your... Um, like your space at British Red Cross in kind of the East Midlands, providing accommodation and um, sort of uh, advice and advocacy to to ensure that someone has the space to make that decision. Mm. Equally, the um, Safe Places project in in that run by the West Midlands Anti Slavery Network again, fantastic initiative, meaning that people can have that moment of just okay, I'm I'm supported, I have a roof over my head, I'm going to think about what what's next. Um, mm. So we hugely welcome kind of those initiatives. Um, we also have uh, and we've uh, spoken I've spoke to Amber a few weeks ago about yes. her, um, about that, that program so that's another one of our podcasts oh brilliantly on yes. the West Midlands uh, yes. safe space program so good yes um, and we yeah I, we have we have utilized both of those kind of um, programs for for clients that we're engaging with and it just it genuinely makes such a difference so those things are um, are fantastic I think more recently with our um, with Operation Fort, it was a large kind of operation um, bringing kind of to justice a, a kind of large criminal gang of, uh, of traffickers in the UK that trafficked Polish nationals. And we were kind of heavily, Hope for Justice was heavily involved in that case, having identified and then um, a lot of the, um, well, some of the first and then a lot of the 
um, survivors and then working with them longer term, that was really a good example of good practice within the police. They engaged so well with um, the survivors. They had a, a kind of ded- de- like dedicated victim liaison officer that built that built that rapport with clients. They understood the issues of DLR. They understood how to apply for DLR, why it was important, um, which is discretionary leave to remain that is available to to, pe- to survivors for various different reasons. One of them being when they're engaging with the police. Um, and that uh, seeing the experience of survivors through Operation Fort, we could highlight a lot of good practice. Even when it went to court, um, Caroline Horhey, the, the QC working on the case, was so empowering and supportive of the, the witnesses and really kind of saying it's only because of you that we're doing this. And that had, you know, it's it it had such an, uh, an incredible impact on, on the witnesses. So right the way from yeah. identification through to the successful outcome in court, you know, there was good practice um, the whole way through. Um, I would also highly commend the kind of new, the launch of the training standards that's just recently been launched that's um, kind of been um done by Skills and Care, led by um, St. Mary's and Snowdrop, an amazing initiative of bringing together the sector to create um, um, kind of standards of training required for people working in this area. And I think those will go such a huge way to kind of providing a consistency of training and knowledge within both the sector, but also wider, those that come in contact with clients that will help to, um, Mm. I do think, you know, obviously we yet to see the the outcomes of that and we're, we're looking forward to the learnings from that. But my goodness, it's going to go a long way to ensuring that that there's a level of training and expertise within the sector that can support support survivors in several ways. So yeah, there are, um, we also, I guess, have quite individual um, kind of quite local authority specific examples of, of good practice. We have um, areas where they have a really fantastic no recourse team that have a high level of knowledge and expertise on trafficking and their duties and their kind of international and domestic duties to survivors of trafficking and also just to to ensuring they prevent breaches of human rights that makes a massive difference when we're kind of supporting clients that are in that kind of situation um but I guess a lot of them are Mm. kind of pocketed and and obviously we're hoping that a lot of that good practice will be shared and learned so that it has a um kind of wider impact but yeah there is a lot of good practice out there and like I mean our role is only possible through kind of partnership with support services and other things you know supported employment projects bright future jericho foundation these um kind of organizations working to kind of enhance the options available to survivors to move forward there is there is definitely a lot of good practice um that we make full use of as imps whenever they arise so <laughs> yeah those are just a few but thank goodness for that yeah good. well great to hear that there's a lot of good practice that we yes. could be drawing from as well and a really important precedent being set across the sector to in all different aspects and fields yeah uh, great so We've unfortunately run out of time, Olivia. That's been so interesting, though. A really great great conversation. Thanks so much for making the time to speak to me. It's been it's been great. If anyone would like to find out more information or get in touch with you, what should they do? Absolutely. Um, You can contact if you kind of want to know more about, I guess, the IMS model. We will be sharing um, more information on that and the report quite shortly so hopefully that'll be available but you can contact me um at olivia.nightingale at hopeforjustice.org if you you know want to hear more specifically around the IMSA model um if anyone does want to reach out for advice um our advice email address is advocacy.advice at hopeforjustice.org um and it's our main line number that can also get through to our advocacy team so again i can share those with you and they can be 
um, shared with those. But for listeners, yeah, if they want to kind of get in touch via any of those means, we would welcome, um, you know, speaking to them and hearing from them. Perfect. And I'll put all of those details in the show notes and the some of the documents that you mentioned as well. We can include links to that Absolutely. as well so that people can access those. That'd be great. Awesome. Thank you. So that just leaves me to say thank you again to Olivia. I really look forward to hearing more about the evolution and the development of the IMSA model. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Kat, for having me and for asking such yeah pertinent questions. It's really good. <laughs> really exciting. Great. Really good to have you. <laughs> Thanks again to Olivia for this conversation. Thanks also to you all for listening. For more information about the work featured in this episode, please check out the show notes. Find us on Twitter at Actions Podcast. You can watch the video recording of this discussion on our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. To get in touch or to suggest a topic to be featured in an episode, either direct message us on Twitter or alternatively email actionspodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and feel free to leave a review. You've been listening to Actions, Responses to Trafficking podcast. Music used in this episode is Inspiration, written by Rayful Crux and sourced from freepd.com. Actions is produced and presented by Catherine Baldacchino.